Welcome, everybody, to the SaaS Ramp Podcast. I'm your host, Podcast Pete. Great guest on today. I've known him before today, but we're going to have a special visit so we can unpack a little bit more from Todd Capone, author of Transparency Sale and the Transparent Leader. Welcome to the show, Todd. Oh, man, it's good to hear from you. Good to talk to you. You've got the radio voice going. I can't wait. Okay. Yeah. We, we've got a lot to talk about as far as like voices go today. The last LinkedIn post I saw from you actually had you standing at a microphone delivering the audio to your new book. So can't wait to hear all about that. Yeah. Oh, but first, like you were telling me something just before we started, by the way, the, just before we started, I call that the precast because yep. it is, is one of the most interesting pieces of any podcast is the seven minutes leading up to when you start talking, it should be recorded separately, secretly. And then like, there's a whole series on those. <laughs> But you told me a story and, and like we deal in hyper growth here. And then you told me about history and I was like, oh, just, just tell that, just go ahead yeah. and tell that story and that's what <laughs> we can take it off. So please. Yeah, I, I would love to, you know, when cool people are doing cool things on the weekends, me being the nerd I am, you can normally find me reading like a 1905 magazine on sales or sales management. Like that's my nerdery is sales history. And what we were talking about was you know, shameless self-backpatting, I, I kind of predicted what's happening from a macroeconomic perspective well before anybody. And it's based on looking through the pages of sales history. And, and here's the story. You know, a hundred years ago, as an economy, we suffered what I like to call the great salesperson purge of the 1920s. And what that means is that in 1921, the sales world especially here in the U.S. specifically, but you'd see it across the world, suffered 77% salesperson turnover. And in 1922, there was 85% salesperson turnover. So I looked at that and I was like, wait, what, what happened? And it, it's mostly involuntary. So sales leaders purging their sales teams. I'm like, what happened? Well, I start reading and I realized that the six years leading up to 1921, when this started, look exactly like the last six years today to a T. Meaning, if you look at 1914 to 1918, you had slow and steady growth economically, right? Things were good. They were growing at a regular normal pace. And then all of a sudden, the economy shut down for a short period of time. All right. That was 1918 when the U.S. entered World War I. Everybody shut down. Everything stopped for a while. If you look at the last four years, you've got the exact same thing. 2017 to 2020, slow and steady growth. And then COVID hit, economy shuts down for a short period of time. Afterwards, the war ended in late 1918. We came out of it with massive speed of growth, right? Just investment everywhere. It's the industrial revolution, the progressive era of that. What happened was we had what you could call the great resignation going on because there were so many more roles available than there were salespeople. So salespeople changing jobs all day long, right? Chasing money. Wow. That, that sounds familiar, right? Late 2020 through 2021, we had the great resignation where there was mass turnover and that was voluntary. Back then it was 65% turnover and it was a lot voluntary. The last numbers I saw showed that the last couple of years for us, we were experiencing around 57% salesperson turnover. But then what happened? Inflation spike, massive inflation spike. Back then it was 7% and they were considering that catastrophic. 
here we hit as you know the low nine percent so seven percent was catastrophic holy crap and so you had the inflation spike and then all of a sudden the bottom dropped out we had a depression in 1921 that nobody talks about late 1920 to early 1921 and as a result instead of revenue at all costs you talk about sas ram it's like back then it was like hey revenue at all costs and then coming out of it they're like hey you know what probably be smart for us to think profitable growth instead of revenue, right? And they yeah. started purging sales teams. Now, I was not ringing the hear ye, hear ye bell, the end is near, like anything like that. But you could see throughout history that we've experienced the same types of environments. We step on the same rake over and over again. And when you can see that, you could predict it. And that's part of what I find so fascinating about sales history. But I've been telling people, listen, we've got to prepare. There's some things that we can be doing to make sure that our sales organizations are prepared because look throughout history too. You'll see that so many of the most successful companies in the world today were actually founded during economic downturns. There was something special about what they did. We see that in SaaS as well, because whenever it turns down, you'll see new products that's right for a little bit of, of turnover and churn, some change. So that's interesting. And a hundred years perfectly. So like the, you threw out the 1922 number all the way to 2022. And then, yeah, I, you know, it's funny because you mentioned like, you don't, you don't hear about that one. I don't hear about that one. And I'm not sales history buff, but just like, just being through uh, too much schooling in my life and then teaching, like, but if you're going to hear about something happening in the twenties, it's not going to gear in on that little nugget right there. You're going to like shoot your like one moment in time to you know, some flappers or something like that. And then eventually to the great depression. So that's really interesting. You're the only one I ever hear talk about sales history. And so there was even some books that you released on LinkedIn. You're like, check this one, this one, this one, this one. I was like, oh my God, because you just can't, you can't believe what's out there. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks for your weekend nerdery. Like that is, yeah. that is a unique perspective. A hundred percent. Exactly. It's so funny that like when I, I had, there was a private equity partner that was joking with me that he was like, Todd, you know what you should do? You should scroll LinkedIn. And then when you see a post that's got a lot of action around it, you should duplicate the post, but with quotes from a hundred years ago, because I literally could so much of what we talk about today and see today, they were theorizing a hundred to 120 years ago when really modern sales began, right? Like when we look at organizations that hired their own salespeople and then hired people like you, Pete, that, you know, enable them and train them and like do it in the culture of their own organization. That started in the late 1890s with companies like NCR and Burroughs Adding Machine and then grew through to the early 1920s. And it looks exactly like today, same objections, same challenges, same comp issues, like all of it looks exactly the same then that it did today. That's so interesting. Maybe it was another one of your posts then too, that was like showing like all the things back in time of like, these are issues. Like we've never seen this before. And it's like decade by decade showing that. And like the paper gets yellower and yellower as it goes back in time. Exactly. That was exactly it. And it's, it's funny, you know, side note, and we didn't prep for this, but you know, when you look at that stuff and you look at the challenges they had, I, I recently had a I recognize something, and I think maybe for your listeners, they might love this. One of the things they didn't complain about was forecasting, right? Every, you talk to every leader, every revenue leader of every SaaS company, and they're like, man, I, I wish I could be a better forecaster. I wish I could create a culture where my team was better at, at forecasting. 
you know, a hundred years ago, that was one thing they didn't have problems with, which is really interesting. Right. And so I, being the nerd I am, I'm like, I got to figure out why, like why was forecasting okay back then when they didn't have CRM, they didn't have Slack, they didn't even see each other, right? Their reps are remote and they're, they're communicating via wire. What was the difference? Here's the difference. And it's profound and it's easy. If you, for anybody that's ever watched the movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross from 1992, <laughs> you know, there's a scene in it that you all know. And if you don't YouTube it, just be careful. Cause when you watch it, like last time I watched it, I think I cried myself to sleep afterwards. It, it's like, it's brutal, but like Blake played by Alec Baldwin, he comes in from the head office of Mitch and Murray and then berates the sales reps. And he goes through this abusive rant, but he actually got one thing right in it. On his chalkboard, he had the letters A-I-D-A on it. I don't know if you remember that, but A-I-D-A, he got one of the words wrong, but he walked through what the buying process is, right? It was, are they paying attention? Are they interested? Have they made a decision? That's the one word he got wrong. And then are they going to take action, right? What's interesting about that is back in 1898, Elias St. Elmo Lewis wrote about what every buyer goes through on their buying journey. It was AIDA. Are they paying attention? Are they interested? Have they developed a desire? So that was the one word wrong. And then are they taking action? That was not only the journey that buyers took, but it became the basis for every sales process and every forecasting methodology. Everyone from 1898 into at least the 1940s that I'm able to see. What that means is that sales reps back then, their entire focus was based on recognizing buyer behavior. The endorphins that they got from running through sales process and forecasting stages were based on buyer milestones, not what the seller was doing. Where I'm going with that is fast forward. And we wonder why in 1993 with Siebel or the 1999 with Salesforce and then HubSpot, out of the box, what are the CRM stages that are based on your pipeline? They're all seller activities, right? There's, you know, qualify, discover, demo, send a proposal, close, all of them. And we wonder why, and all sales process, every sales process that I was brought up with in selling were what sellers are doing, seller activities. And every endorphin rush I would get is, hey, I delivered a proposal. Isn't that great? We lost our connection with recognizing buyer behavior. And we wonder, why is it so hard to predict what a buyer is going to buy? Well, could it have something to do with all of our processes are based on what the seller's doing? I think there's huge opportunity and maybe it's not AIDA, but AIDA was in every one of these books, right? These books that I have here from 1905 to 1920, there's actually one in 1924 by Elmer Ellsworth that he wrote every philosopher on sales concedes, and he uses the word concedes that the buying process is AIDA, right? He's got a chart in it. Like, we're not going to talk about, because we all know that's what happens. And today, nobody does AIDA, not a single person. They're like, wow, that's, well, it's recognizing buyer behavior. And maybe you don't have to do AIDA, but if you would create a culture where you're not only recognizing buyer behavior, but maybe across the top of your stages, you can even do the three stages that buyers go through today, right? They, why change? 
So they make a determination whether their status quo is worth keeping or changing. And then they go through to a stage of why you, like what's the solution I'm going to go with. And then the third stage is why now, right? And I'll argue anybody on the order of those, but they then decide I'm going to do this now or I'm going to wait. If you layer those across the top of your sales forecast stages and then create an environment where your reps are taught to recognize that, and that's where they get their endorphins, your forecast will become more accurate overnight. Like we did as when I was the chief revenue officer of power reviews, our forecast was sickly, like right on. I wrote a lot about it in the new book, The Transparent Sales Leader, but this idea of recognizing buyer behavior changed the culture, changed the relationships, but made the forecast more accurate. That is a lesson that history got right that we get wrong today. Okay. So super interesting lesson from history. Everything from like <laughs> being able to bring in some Glengarry Glen, Glen Ross is like never a bad thing. <laughs> Is there anything that has to do, is there any level of complexity that exists now that didn't exist there? Is that a business to consumer only? It was it business to business then as well? Like, is there any other variables that can come into the mix besides simply having this heavy CRM technological overlay created, probably based on what was able to be created from a, you know, it's, it, these are things that you can punch buttons for. So if you can punch buttons for them, they're better for software, you know, being, being the, the, the cart leading the horse, so to speak. So I, I definitely get that. Is there anything else? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting is, so 1916, so 106 years ago, Detroit, Michigan, something called the World Sales Congress was taking place. This is a, the first of its kind sales conference like we have today, but it was attended by 3,000 salespeople and dignitaries from around the world, really. What's so interesting about it is the keynote speaker was then President Woodrow Wilson, right? So think about a sales conference today, like the president of the United States come keynote, like why? Well, I'll tell you why. Back then, you know, it was B2B in a huge way. We were in the progressive era of the industrial revolution where we had figured out manufacturing and while the rest of the world was getting into World War I, the U.S. saw this as an opportunity to get a head start, right? And so there was a lot of emphasis put on B2B selling back then. The one thing that's the same but different, if I can say that, is back then the sales profession was trusted and respected and even admired. It was taught in every university, like Harvard, I, you know, like Yale, like all the, the Ivy Leagues, all the Big Ten schools, like Michigan, Ohio State, they were all teaching sales back then. They were actually teaching at high school. There was 11 Boston public schools that were teaching sales. Why? Because there was such a desire for it. But there was a culture that salespeople doing right by their customers, the right solutions at the right price at the right time, lifted all boats. Because when we did that right, our customers would succeed. When they would succeed, they would hire, the economy would grow, and we as a U.S. would become a superpower because we would get this head start. Mm. So, so back then, like when you think about slime, there was no slime back then. Sales was like the cool people were in sales. Now you fast forward, we went through a big dip, 1960s, 1970s, where sales became super slimy, still shows up on the bottom of Gallup's annual list of trusted professions, right? But now I see it coming back a little bit. And I think it's because of the blow form by which companies can use when they have bad experiences. And that now we have to be up front. We have to be honest, right? If the truth won't sell it, you don't sell it anymore. 
that becomes so much more important. And then you combine with that, that back then the customers would buy something, they would use it and they would move on. Sometimes there was more to sell. Sometimes there wasn't. Today, every deal is a, as a service deal, right? Like it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you know, SaaS and there's pass, right? Product as a service and, you know, services companies that require great relationships because again, the blowhorn is so loud that you have to do right by your customers or you will fail as an organization. So that's why they're the same, but different. And I'm hoping that our, our profession comes back and learns how to sell the truth. Like kind of the point in my first book, the transparency sale, but it's this idea that if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. So from that perspective, selling the truth is exactly the same as it was a hundred years ago. Interesting. We definitely have to jump into those books, but first I'm wondering like if the, if the similarities between back then and what you kind of are, are seeing, hopefully seeing, not just predicting, but seeing come back to light now, I'm wondering if it's because like, these are people who are spreading like word of mouth more so than anything else. I don't know if Sears Roebuck catalog exists at the time, or I just don't know how much of a marketing presence there was. So maybe it's like trusted community members. And so if you did write by the customer, they would tell their friends. And then now, like, it's not the same at all, but there's like a digital community maybe that's happening. And so here's your Yelp review for that bad service. Here's your, you know, and you just get smeared so quickly if you don't do well. So it, yeah. you think that that played in, played a part in that, in that dip in between versus like what you see then and now? Totally. Like, who are you going to complain about or complain to, right? You're going to write a letter, like, you know, no, exactly. And so as a result, you could sell lies and get away with it. I really, from what I can see, and I understand it, is, you know, back when the, the Great Depression hit was when we really started to see the professional road. So I think that's number one, because you'd have desperation, right? Tough times call for tough measures. You had reps that would go door-to-door -door selling because a lot of the selling, even business-to-business -business was door-to-door -door back then, but they would bring their kids, right? And just be like, if you don't buy from me, Johnny, you won't eat, right? Like you'd have that kind of stuff which got slimy, but I believe that a lot of the core of what happened was this change from being buyer centric to being seller centric. That really started to illuminate itself in the 1950s when you had companies like IBM that are selling these massive machines, right? Like these machines cost more than airplanes do, you know, like they're, they're insane. And so the sellers had to become seller centric, right? They had to make sure that they were qualifying the crap out of you before they would spend their time like, hey, do you, this is going to cost a lot. Like that's where bad started. But mm. we became very seller focused and seller centric and we lost our face to face, our eye to eye, our shake hand to shake hand type relationship. And you know, that's part of it. The other part of it is technology, sadly, right? Like you, you look at today, we all talk like we're in this sales technology revolution, right? That technology is filling every remaining crevice of the selling profession. Isn't that great? If you look throughout history, that's been terrible, right? The, the telephone, like starting like that right there, that's a, I just got that. It's a refurbished phone from 1908, you know, original wiring, the crank, the thing, the bell rings. That's a symbol to me of how we ruin technology as salespeople. And that when we don't think about it through the eyes of the buyer and instead think about it in terms of purely. How do we, you know, scale, scale, scale the, the telephone, the greatest sales technology revolution in the history of the sales profession, right? 
Alexander Graham Bell, 1876, makes the first phone call. By the 1920s, it revolutionized not only communication, but sales outreach. And we ruined it. We needed technologies in place to prevent salespeople from selling, like caller ID and voicemails. And then the government had to get involved because that didn't work. And by the end of 2021, there were 221 million telephone numbers on the national do, call, do not call registry, right? Like Alexander Graham Bell would be rolling over in his grave if he knew that. So oh, that, that's also part of it. It's the combination of becoming seller-centric instead of buyer-centric. That was problem number one. And through it, technologies exacerbated that whole thing through us starting to just see our customers as a number instead of a human being. We did it with the telephone. We did it with email. We're kind of doing it with LinkedIn. I see us starting to do it with video. We've got to get buyer-centric again. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it all makes total sense. Dude, Todd, this is like, so this is like sales history 101. This is really fascinating. We got a couple of places, like, like I would like to hear, cause you mentioned the kind of the theme of the first book, which I was aware of previously, but like that, that, that piece of like, Hey, if it's, if, if you can't sell it with the truth, it's not worth selling. Like that's a, that's a, that's an intriguing tidbit. So maybe to understand a little bit about first book versus second. And then you also had a bit that we were kind of talking about, we're like talking about, Hey, what's the, what's the, what's the feeling out there and is the macro macroeconomic headwinds, which we turned into a history lesson, but there was a right. couple things on that side too. Again, yeah. these are broad, broad things to throw out there, but maybe the books, maybe some lessons, like whatever you yeah. like. Yeah. Why, well, why don't we start with, I'll give you the cliff notes version of the first book and the second book. I mean, that the first book was called the transparency sale and it was based on this idea of, you know, all of you listening. You, when a website's acting as a salesperson, you all read reviews, right? The funny thing is 85% of you go to the negative reviews first. When you're going to buy, you're going to buy a pair of shoes, you scroll past the five-star reviews and read the fours, threes, twos, and ones first, right? And when a product through a study that we had done, when I was the chief revenue officer of a company called Power Reviews here in Chicago, through that study, we had found that human by consumers, when a website's acting as a salesperson are more likely to buy a product, the highest preponderance of conversion happens when the average review score on a product is between a four, two and a four, five, meaning a product with negative reviews right under it actually helps itself. A product that's got a average review score of a four, two will sell at a higher conversion rate than a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews. Now, for me, I looked at that and I was like, well, that's funny. That's on a website acting as a salesperson, but why do we do that? And would that same brain behavioral type of engagement apply to human to human and B2B selling? I found out emphatically it does that when we actually lead with the truth, right? That, Hey, listen, you might not like this or this, but if you're cool with those things, you're going to love this, right? And we started doing it at Power Reviews. We became Chicago's fastest growing tech company from 2017, I'm sorry, 2014 to 2017. And it was because of this idea of if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it, first of all. But second of all, when you actually lead with what we give up to be great at our core, you build trust, you speed sales cycles because our brain requires that to be able to predict and make a decision, right? Our brain knows that perfection doesn't exist. It needs the negatives to even be able to process the positives. When we lead with it, again, sales cycles speed up, win rates go up, 
We work the deals we should be working by qualifying in better, but we qualify out better and faster as a part of it too. If you're going to lose, lose fast. Transparency, greatest way to do it. And that was the basis of the first book, not just the fluffy science of it, but how do you apply it to your messaging, positioning, formal presentations, even negotiating and all the way to client success interviews, the whole shebang. That was the first book, wrote it. I didn't know how it would be received, but it's like, you know, four years later, the thing is, I, I still can't believe how well it's doing, but that was the basis of the first one. Nice. The second book is called The Transparent Sales Leader. It kind of starts with that same concept that, you know, we not only, you know, transparency not only sells better than pretending to be perfect, but it leads better too. So it starts there. But the second book is a combination of two things that I know as a revenue leader, I never learned. And I don't see it anywhere. And like, I didn't want to write a book that's already been written, right? From like, I've read all these books. This one's never been written. That the book is really two core chunks. The first part is in the sales world, you had a structure, you had a process, you had a foundation. Sales leaders, for me, I felt like I was a dog chasing a car down the street every day, right? I'd wake up every morning with, oh, a recruiting issue, a deal issue, a forecast issue, a board meeting. I got to prep. I couldn't handle that. So I created a framework for myself of what sales leadership was, and I began to use it for planning, strategizing, communicating, interviews. When things got hot, I always had that to fall back on. And it, it was the five Fs of building revenue capacity, but it's a sales process for sales leaders, right? So that's mm -hmm. the, the core. I walked through that. I've optimized all the pieces with behavioral science so that you could create incredible proactive type environments for you as a leader and maximize your revenue capacity. And then the second part I was also never taught was the science of what drives us intrinsically to show up every day, stay, do our best, and become advocates, not only for our own organization, but to our friends for the, the jobs. And so that's what the new book is. It's the structure of revenue leadership, optimized by science on a bed of transparency. And that optimized by science really digs into the science of intrinsic inspiration too. So. That's kind of the, as fast as I could go on the, the two books, but that's what I've written and people seem to like it. That's well done. Yeah. It just, and, and in all transparency, the second book, like before it was fully finished, like that's what we brought you into Postman for is to go through the five Fs, those yeah. pieces, and then like work through a leadership workshop over the course of two days. It was great. It was really cool. We had some takeaways to like move into programs for existing layers of leadership who were coming on fast and furious if we, as we've grown so, so rapidly. So really, really cool. I actually need to dive back into the, the first one just to go back there. Cause the premises, the premises are fascinating too. Cause you're looking for like, you're like, you're looking for it. So if you could just go ahead and provide it and just bring it off the, you know, as long as you take it easy on that, there's an SNL skit. Like I can't even go into the details. It's so bad, but Will Ferrell is like the bad boss. He's like the, he's like the terrible boss. And he comes in and like, he's interviewing somebody and each person walks up and like somebody brings him a donut. He's like, no, I said cream filled and he, like slaps it out of their hand. It's like, so anyway, I was telling you about the job. And so he's like, he's treating all his employees like, and he's trying to hire this new person. And at the very end, he just gets like, well, if you'd like me to do this, 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 and this, he names off all the terrible things he would do to this person if he hired him. He's like, then this is the job for you. And so like, some person like that, like that. That, bit. that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a, that's a Chicago comedy troupe for you right there too. Those people are all coming out. Of, I forget what it's called. It's like second city or something like that. Second city. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But I'll tell you the, 
the, the thing that really the takeaway from all of that is my real perspective on what sales is supposed to be in the future of sales. You know, probably heard the line, salespeople know more nowadays. Right? You hear that. I'm sorry, buyers know more nowadays. Buyers, you hear yeah. that line, buyers know more nowadays and like, oh, is that a threat to the sales profession? Well, those four words, buyers know more nowadays. That was actually found in a 1912 book by Thomas Herbert Russell called Salesmanship, where he was talking about the proliferation of marketing and advertising, negating the need to have salespeople in the future, right? Mm -hmm. That buyers knew, like they could do all the, but the profession flourished. You fast forward to 2015. In 2015, Forrester in their annual state of sales report claimed that by 2020, 1 million B2B sales jobs would go away because buyers knew more. And that hundreds of thousands of college students wouldn't graduate in the profession because of the proliferation of e-commerce and the ability for buyers to just go through the process on their own. What do they need salespeople for? Well, by 2020, instead of it going down a million, it doubled. Why? Because more information does not make it easier on buyers. It makes it harder. That's number one. Number two is really this, this when I said like the future of sales and the way that we need to think about it is goes back to that first book is we as human beings, we don't buy when we've been convinced to buy, right? Like salespeople, it's like, Hey, we got to convince, you know, no, we don't buy when we're convinced. If we do, we're probably angry about it. Two hours later, we buy when we can predict. That's why you as a human being read the negative reviews first, right? Cause you've got to be able to process that. That's why that sells better. That's why companies like you may have heard of Amazon. They're doing pretty well, right? They were the ones in 1995 that first started listing negative reviews right under their own products and it helped them sell more. You got to think through that lens. Our job as salespeople today and to the future is to be a Sherpa, to be an asset, to be a consultant to our customers. Do the homework, share the negatives and the positives, do the homework for them, and you're going to find that your relationships build faster. You're going to differentiate in the way that you sell. And like I said, Sales cycles will speed up because you're helping the buying brain predict faster. And again, you're going to work the deals you should be working and at losing the deals you're going to lose anyway a lot faster. So you can spend more time finding and working the opportunities that you should be winning. Yeah, totally. So the, so I, I made a transition in my career. I moved from two hard science degrees and 10 years in education and in, in varsity coaching, a soccer coach and a biology teacher for the most part. And so... Uh, when I was considering I was going to go back to medical school and I was going to become a physician's assistant, I found out how long that was. And so I was, I was seeking something else. I was like, oh, goodness, like got a baby on the way. What are we going to do? And I read three books on sales and I go, oh, we can do this because the one book that I found that said, it's not what you think it is. You're looking to find a fit. All you need to do is find a fit. And I go, oh, that's what that is. Because the mentality you spoke about before, like I came up through like the Reagan era and stuff like that, like Wolf of Wall Street was going on. You know, so that's not a profession that I wanted to use my, my master's in aquatic macroinvertebrate assemblages of Southeastern Tennessee thesis on, right? Like, like, <laughs> and that is true, unfortunately, but it's like, but like finding a fit and helping educate people until they find out where they line up, whether it's with your organization or not. That's like, dude, that's, that's noble. We can get behind that. We can also, exactly. we can also bring this baby up. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the quick thing though, you had asked about like, you know, kind of the macroeconomic environment and, you know, as I'm looking at that and I'm advising companies on just the way to think about it, yeah, scroll through LinkedIn and there's advice everywhere, 
right? Like everybody talking about what you should do as the economy tightens. I, I have two quick ideas for leaders that I don't think you're going to find elsewhere. Totally. At least I don't think so. But the first one that I want everybody to think about is this idea of when, when you, as a human being, hit a personal recession, right? Like you can see in your own life that, oh, dollars are tight, checkbook doesn't look the way it did before, or I can't predict whether or not it's going to continue to look good. You, you all do three things, right? The first thing you do is you probably cut off your discretionary spending, right? Like any of the nice to have stuff goes away. So I, I don't need that new couch. Like that could wait. So we got a couch that works. I new car. I don't, maybe I don't need that personal trainer. So that's number one. Number two thing that we do is we look at our necessary costs, like the things that are, we absolutely need, and we seek to cut costs on those, right? So instead of going to Whole Foods to buy a gallon of milk, maybe you go to Aldi, it's still a gallon, it comes from a cow, it's milk, right? And it costs half. That's number two, right? Cut off discretionary, reduce costs. And then number three is we seek to extend our runway on the things that we need that maybe will be scarce in the future, right? Whatever it is. Back in 2020 in March, what was perceived to be scarce was going to be two-ply toilet paper, right? Like everybody lining up at Costco and filling their carts and hoarding it. That's what we all do. Now think about it from a macroeconomic perspective. You do that as a human being. All your companies that you're selling to are filled with human beings. As things get tight for them, they're thinking those same three things right? Delay the discretionary, reduce costs where they can, and extend their runway on the things they know they're going to need. What I've advised people to do, I did back in March of 2020, and I'm maybe a little softer about this now, but advice piece number one was back then I was telling people, go to your website, look at your messaging on your website. That's who you are. Think about the messaging that you're enabling your reps to do. Hit select all and then hit delete. And then get the room and go, all right, who are we based on, you know, the fall of 2022, right? And the macro, who are we now? Back then it was in April of 2020, our value proposition has to be different than it was in, you know, December of 2019, right? Because the whole world had changed. As the world's changing now, all of you, advice, piece of advice number one is hone your messaging for today. Your messaging, if it was written six months ago, no longer relevant, start it on. And I still am seeing these websites that sound so fluffy and like, oh, we're going to, you know what? That was cool when the market was thriving. It's not going to be cool when the market's tight. All right. So that's advice number one. Advice number two is we, we as revenue leaders, when things get tight, we tend to want to cast a wider net in terms of the prospects we're willing to go after, right? We're just like, ah. You know, we should call more, like call you know, more monkeys and more typewriters. Like just call lots more. I actually am an advocate for doing the polar opposite of that. And instead of casting a wider net, cast a tighter net. I call it practicing extreme firmographic focus for short spurts. And what that means, I, I did it with one of my companies. I was the SVP of sales for a, a tech company in 2008, 2009 during the Great Recession we were calling on all manufacturers. What I realized is that my reps couldn't walk in with swagger and talk to a VP of manufacturing for a Fortune 1000 manufacturer with any kind of confidence. And so we had just closed an aerospace company making airplanes and 
I just, I, along with my CEO, so I was not the full mastermind of this, but I said, hey, listen, why don't we do this? We hired a consultant that knew aerospace and defense cold. Like the guy had been in it for 40 years, older guy, hired him to come work with the team and just teach them about what they care about, what they're measured by, what they read, where they go to get smarter about their own business. We started there. Next thing we do is we brought in that aerospace customer that we had signed and they, they wanted to see us be successful. So they shared the same things, including a fourth question, which is show us your inbox. Meaning you get all these salespeople bothering you. Like which ones stand out? Like what, what do you actually engage with? Right. We got marketing to rally around aerospace and defense. So do case studies for us, like educate us. The next thing you know, we didn't have to shrink anybody's territory. Our reps just woke up in the morning wanting to call on aerospace and defense. They had confidence. That confidence became contagious. The next thing you know, we closed Boeing, Cessna, Gulfstream, Spirit, the manufacturer, not the airline. And we, we looked at that and we're like, holy crap. We went slowly out from there. So what's another industry that looks like aerospace? And like, hey, heavy manufacturing. Did the same thing. We went and got deer and caterpillar. Next thing you know, we'd grown 400% year over year. And by 2011, we sold the business to SAP. My advice for all of you is to think about, instead of casting a wider net, create pockets of expertise with your team around certain verticals and set your, you don't have to restrict territories. Your reps will want to do it. And all of a sudden that confidence will drive deals in a really rapid way. And I, I've seen it worked over and over again, even during hard times for startups I've worked with that are like, hey, let's call on everybody and see what we get. And I'm like, hey, why don't you, you just closed a, a shoe retailer. Why don't you bring that shoe retailer in, find an expert in shoes and like tuck shoes for six weeks. And the next mm -hmm. thing you know, they get cold Han and cracks and sketchers and they're on fire, right? I think that's huge advice for anybody right now. Practice extreme firmographic focus. And then that first one is to rethink your messaging based on today. Because what worked six months ago, we're in a different world. Yeah. Two questions. On the first, are we mitigating risk more for them in the value proposition for the most part than trying like a, a promise of, an, of some form of acceleration or increase? Like, is that the basic transition? It, exactly. Exactly. It's thinking about their own world from an empathetic lens that you know that these individuals at home, if they're practicing, you know, a personal recession, but in their businesses, that they're worried about the risk of, holy crap, what if things get worse? Like, what are we going to do? I mean, that's top of mind for everybody. As I talk to private equity partners, they're like, yeah, that's exactly what we're advising all of our portfolios to do right now. All our portfolio companies, we're telling them to seek cost reductions where they can, put off discretionary purchase, and then make sure that you've got 18 to 24 months of cash on hand. All three things, right? They cut off discretionary, reduce cost, and extend their runway on the things they need. It's exactly what we're all doing. Your messaging has got to hit that. Interesting. Okay. Makes sense. The second one is you chose Boeing. Who, who was the first one? You had somebody in, like you had closed a deal. Yeah. Yeah. We had had a, it was a defense company. I think it was Northrop Grumman. So we, we okay. did, we focused on aerospace and defense there at the beginning, but it was mainly that they, they, they were building, you know, that type of stuff. So, and hypothetically, because that worked, and so it was this concept of tripling down on what works. So in product-led growth, this is like a SaaS sales motion that has a super wide adoption, typically backed by heavy venture capital dollar before they go really high. They build that foundation so wide 
so that the ultimate hype can go higher. There's, 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 you already have users. Your buyers are your, are today's users. And so it's, it's, it twists everything about 45 degrees. It's really interesting. Any, like, would you still take and apply the same concept across like a user base, like, you know, 22 million developers. So where to focus within that realm? Still all applicable, you think? Yeah, I actually just got off the phone an hour ago with the president of a $200 million tech company that is also product-led growth. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, their, their top of funnel is they draw in all of these small business owners to do a, a trial of their technology. Their conversion rate on those trials is 16%. Mm-hmm. Now, they have a business development rep that's reaching out to every single one of these which means that they're wasting 84% of that time. Why? Because they're casting this huge net to bring in this product-led growth, but 84% of those targets are actually wasting the dollars of that organization, wasting the time of that organization. Every one of those leads is an opportunity cost. And what he wants to do is get a lot tighter and go, hey, instead of us having tons of leads across all these industries, Why don't we try to focus our lead generation on the ones that we are more likely to convert? Let's look at the 16% that we do well and see where the commonalities are, see where we're finding those people. And instead of keeping our all dollars, marketing dollars across all of this, what we double down on those ones that convert higher. That's exactly what they're doing, right? Product net growth, exactly the same type of way, but there's a huge opportunity because Again, if you're wasting 84% of that spend to bring in that pipeline and only converting 16% of all of it, you're probably not doing as efficiently as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. That, that's, that's very cool. Interesting on that one too. The PLG motion, the same. Yeah. Uh, Todd, we, we've blown our time out of the water because it's so, just because we have, because it's so interesting. That was extremely valuable to me personally. And I know it will be to our audience. Any, any, I mean, I don't, I don't know if a smoother way to say it, but like a little bit of a call to action. You've got two books. They are both released. The Transparent Leaders released as well. Yeah, it's on paperback is in wide delivery as well as Kindle version. We were joking. I'm, I'm in the studio right now. So depending on when you release this, I'm hoping to have the audiobook version out by the end of October, beginning of November. And then there's a hardcover. It's set up for print on demand. So if you order it on Amazon, it takes like a week or two to get if you want the, the sturdier book, but the paperback's everywhere, Kindle. And yeah, I hope you love it. Awesome. Hey, will it drop on Audible? This is a personal question only. A lot of people use Audible, but okay. Yeah. The Audible. Yes. Audible is what I'm recording for right now. Sweet. All right. That is so good. Well, I'm so excited for you. Like, this is really, really interesting. It's super fun to watch your journey and everything and like where you've taken it from your high power, you know, like sales leadership roles and then. We are super happy to have you at Postman last year and can't wait to do something again. Love to, man. Thanks for having me on. This is a blast. Thanks, Todd. Cheers. Cheers.